In about the middle of the 19th century, in Norfolk, England, in a particular parish by the name of Langham, there was a certain minister, a certain cleric by the name of John Rondell, who had the following to say about Joseph, and I quote, The history of the patriarch Joseph is deeply interesting and instructive. It has been familiar to us from our very childhood, and every time we read it, we are still delighted with its freshness and vigor. It is my hope, dear brothers and sisters, as we take up the topic of joining Joseph's journey and investigating the life of Joseph and all of the lessons that we can derive for our own edification, that we do find this study to be deeply interesting and indeed instructive, and that we find it to be something a little more useful than a childhood story, not less warming, not less wonderful and endearing, but as those who are called upon to mature in our Christian life, may we avail ourselves of the instructive possibilities that the life of Joseph presents to us. And so in the interest of that objective, I believe that one has to, as I have been arguing, look into the broader framework of the patriarchal story in order to prepare ourselves and our understanding so that when we come to Joseph's life, we can see how the composite picture works and we can then deduce the kind of lessons that uh, we should see that Joseph's life is representing to the people of God who then read the Old Testament and try to put these things together. The patriarchal story, of course, is a broad story. It begins with Abraham in Genesis 12, and it moves all the way through to Genesis chapter 50. You might say it ends with Joseph. Maybe we say Moses is also a patriarch. I'm not trying to get technical here. But in any event, what I'm saying is, is that the patriarchal story itself, as you will recognize, is a primary feature of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is a primary book in the entire Bible. And so these observations are not trivial. They are essential to the Christian believer understanding the walk that God is calling us to and the God who is speaking to us. The book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. One must have a good foundation in one's understanding of how this all began and some of the germinal lessons that are available in the book of Genesis. And if it is the case as it is that the patriarchal story is a very prominent feature of this book of beginnings, and if it is the case that Joseph is the prominent life within the patriarchal story, then I would suggest that the case has been made that in order to appreciate this sort of gem of Joseph's life within the first book of the Bible, one must place it within the crown, if you will, of the patriarchal diadem, which is a part of the beautiful blessing that God has given us in his truth in the book of Genesis. In the interest of that, we return to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, in order to consider additional details of the family story. Joseph doesn't start the family story. 
Joseph enters in to an existing story. And knowing how that story is unfolding is critical to understanding Joseph's life. Abraham, as a matter of fact, had died 76 years before Joseph was born. And Abraham is the original son that changes everything. You want to mark that down in your heart and in your notes and remember, because that itself is critical to understanding Joseph's life. Abraham is the original son that changes everything. Now, we've already spent some time establishing that truth. We won't run through all the ideas afresh at this moment, but I do want to emphasize that to your hearts, and I want to expand that just for a moment so that I can prepare your understandings for the direction that this teaching will take. I want to remind you that though it is the case that within this patriarchal family story, Abram is the first one who is handed the script, if you will, handed by Almighty God, the possibility, the calling, to live out a particular script. On the top of the script is the seed, the son that changes everything, the instrument by which God will bring blessing and redemption to humanity. Now you may know with me that ultimately every single player in the biblical drama who takes up that script will fail his lines, will not follow the direction of the great playwright, Almighty God, and so that script falls to the ground, as it were, in terms of its accomplishment. You may remember, or know, I should say, with me and appreciate that in the fullness of time, therefore God sends forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, born within the context of the script. He is handed the script, and He fulfills it perfectly. He doesn't mess up any of His lines or any of His actions etc., etc. But in order to appreciate how these truths are not just stories for bedtime, but also stories for our development, then we take the time to think about these things as they relate to the human race of which we are a part. So while it is true that with respect to the patriarchal story, Abram is the seed, he is the original son that is given the opportunity to change everything. He is not, as a matter of fact, the first one who is handed that script. Let me remind you of a few things just to set up this idea. Adam, as a matter of fact, do you know that he is called the son of God? The statement is made in the genealogy that Luke provides. And in the 38th verse, as he gets to the end of that genealogy, he says of Adam that he is to Theu. He is of God. And the implication of the original statement, the participle with huios, hon huios, that is being a son of whomever, is implied all the way down the list. So when you come to the 38th verse, you just see to Theos. But it is a son of God. Adam, you might know, he does not live out that calling. He falls, he fails. Now, may I ask you just rhetorically, for all of the splendor of the person of Adam in terms of 
the first human being created by the very hand of God and having the breath of life breathed into him and having himself being a part of that which God said was very good. Do you take exception to my pointing out to you that Adam failed, at least in part, in his place within God's story? No, I don't think you do. I think Christians are quite used to acknowledging that Adam fell. But you might say to me that, well, Brother William, that is pre-lapsarianism, or that is pre-lapsarian. That is Adam before the fall, and we don't need a seed that changes everything in the sense in which we're thinking about it before the fall, and you're quite right. That is a very astute observation. So Adam, though called the son of God, and though in a sense he could be the seed, he could be the son that sets everything going forward properly, he is the first Adam after all, in the sense that Jesus is the second Adam, if you're understanding what I'm saying there, but I'm not here to develop those ideas at the moment. Yet, it is very pertinent to observe that Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium with, with, within which the, 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 the language and the theme of seed is introduced, happens after the fall. Okay, then let's think about it post-Lapsarian period, and let's take up Cain. Cain is the first son that is born after Adam and Eve are given the promise that there would be a seed that would change everything. There would be a son that would change everything. But we know very clearly, do we not, that Cain failed. As a matter of fact, Cain's actions introduces the necessity of an additional word into human conversation. Fracticide. Prior to what he did, we had no need for such a word. Now we need a word for that which stands for killing one's brother, because that is what he did. When we think about Abel, the second child, you might say to yourself, well, he was able possibly to fulfill that role, using a little bit of play on words there. But as we discover, he was himself persecuted and put to death by his brother. And so what this means is that the prospects of a seed helping and redeeming humanity and benefiting the human plight, which would be a wonderful thing, do you not agree with me, that there'd be some sort of um, remedy to the negative features of the human experience, do you recognize with me that Abel had the ability in some measure, at least in the realm of possibility, in the realm of human awareness and thinking, to fulfill that role. But his own brother, his own brother stopped that possibility. His own brother, out of jealousy, entered in and shut his life down. And as a result, threw the human race into further misery. Well, we could go through the list. We come to the seventh from Adam. His name is Enoch. Enoch walked with God, fathered Methuselah, and then leaves the scene. And so I'm just wanting you to reflect on these various features of the pre-story to Abram, because think about this. You have Enoch. As far as we know, 
He, you know, in other words, we are told he walked with God. Now we know that all men post Adam, all men are born and Adam all die. You know, all men need to be regenerated. We understand that. But, but listen to what, what we are told about Enoch and think about the idea of a son that would change everything. Enoch is certainly a likely candidate for that in many useful ways. He obviously would not be able to bring about redemption, right? Just like the blood of bulls, the blood of bulls and goats, it turns out, so to speak, cannot remove sin. We know that. But you understand that these types and figures are to play something meaningful. So if you offer um, a blemished goat, then you're ruining the whole picture. And so Enoch's life should be presented to the human race, anyone who's attentive to the gospel as it's developed at that point, one should be able to look around and say, maybe Enoch is the one. Maybe he's the seed that's going to change everything because he is successfully walking with God for 300 years. He has seemed to develop holy habits, you know, and so maybe he'll stay with it and not fail. But God takes him. God takes him off the scene. But he does give, you know, he does gender Methuselah. And I added Methuselah in this list just for the interesting observation that he is the longest living human being that is recorded in the Bible and most likely the longest living human being of all time. It's unlikely that anybody in the pre-Diluvian period lived longer than Methuselah, I think we would have been told. He lived for 969 years, but he isn't chosen. Now, if we were teaching on this topic, one thing we could do is we could work through these various lives and we could point out all the assets that they had and yet underscore the fact that nonetheless they could not fulfill the need of the Son that changes everything. So, for example, it's not just that we walk with God. At some level of diligence and reality, we cannot become the Redeemer just by walking with God. So any out there that posit themselves, whether it's a Mohammed or a Gandhi or, or Plato for that matter, or Socrates maybe would be more appropriate in this kind of conversation, that seems to have some sort of walk that is commendable and somewhat uh, recommending, uh, dear brothers and sisters, we should learn from Enoch's life, for example, that what we can say about you is you've done a good job, but we have to take you off the scene because you are not the one who will fulfill the need that humanity is crying out for. You're not the desire of the nations. You're not the fairest among 10,000. You're not the lily of the valley. You are not the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. And so with Methuselah, for example, it doesn't matter how long you live. It's not a matter of, oh, we could just keep somebody alive long enough. They would get it right after a while. These are interesting things as it relates to the person of Christ. But I am just underscoring to you because I have a point to make about this general reflection that these sons that could have changed everything prior to Abraham and what we call the patriarchal story that begins with him, they were very real individuals. If you're thinking about this from the language and the thought of seed, and that's what that proto-evangelium is all about. 
Do you understand? If you lived back then, the idea of a gospel, the idea of a hope, the communication that you had from Almighty God, the only truth available, or the core of the truth that was available, is that a seed would be provided. And so you should be looking for this seed. And of course, as time unfolds, it is true that the Jews do understand that need, and they're looking for a Messiah, a son of David, etc. But I could add to this list, of course, Noah. Noah is a man of faith. We're told as much in Hebrews 11. He is certainly unique in his generation. In various ways, that's made clear. He alone finds grace, you know, as it were, in his generation. He is a preacher of righteousness in his generation. But dear friends, if you follow the life of Noah, you will discover that once things dry out, he gets drunk. There were things, obviously, about his pre-Diluvian life that had not dried out enough out of him. So it's not enough to just make it through the natural waters and somehow get to the next age. God has to remove the characteristics of our life that are vulnerable to temptation. Noah, somewhat like Adam and Eve, Noah plants a vineyard, he plants some fruit that you have to be temperate with, not forbidden indeed, that is the fruit of the vine, in my view anyway, it's not fully forbidden. Certainly you can eat raisins if nothing else, you know what I'm saying? It's not fully forbidden. But, but Noah plants a vineyard, he drinks too much of it, he becomes drunk, and I won't get into the rest of the story, but it's a pretty sad story. The prospects of the family, uh, Noah himself and someone within his family being used as the seed that is going to change everything is, is really getting thrown into turmoil. I want to give you a quotation. Most of what I say is extemporaneous, but that being the case, I thought it good to put some of the ideas that I want to make sure that I relay specifically down in words. So I want to quote, I want to read something to you that I want you to get for sure. The call of Abraham is necessitated by the fall of Noah. There is a relative continuity maintained by God's grace through the line of Shem. But make no mistake, when the continuity reaches Abram, the son of Terah and Ur of the Chaldee, Abram and his family are worshiping idols in a city and setting very much like Babylon. One thing we haven't done in this study is brought to your attention some background information relative to Ur, which has been excavated, and the ziggurats and so on that have been discovered there. They are very much like, well, they're the only thing we really have in the modern period, you know, uh, an, an archaeological artifact that manifests to us something of what must have been being built at Babel. And where exactly Ur is relative to Babel and all the rest of it are open questions. What I'm saying is, Noah was obviously chosen to be a son that would change everything and bring him to the new age and let start this whole thing and bring blessing to the human experience. Why do we need Abram to be called in Genesis chapter 12? Because Noah failed. Make no mistake about that. Now my emphasis 
thus far has been to bring these various lives before your attention, all of whom you are, I would say, quite comfortable, and in an appropriate sense, quite comfortable in seeing their failures. When we come to Abraham, as we will now, I would like to continue to follow Abraham through some of the key steps of his life and ask ourselves if we are given the chance to follow him in all of his steps, would it be advisable to do that? Would it be advisable to follow him in all of his steps? You wouldn't follow Adam in all of his steps. You wouldn't follow Cain, though he's the first son born of Adam and Eve. But the Bible tells us, not as Cain that killed his brother. Don't be like Cain. Don't follow his example. It'd be nice to follow Abel, but you'd be following, you know, you can't be the son that changes everything and not for very long if someone takes your life, you know. And you follow what I'm trying to state there. You see, Abraham certainly lived a remarkable life. That is absolutely to be made clear. We're not surprised to find his name featured in Hebrews chapter 11 and indeed throughout the entire biblical narrative. Absorb that, if you will, for a moment. That the various acts that are associated with the life of Abram, number one, leaving where he lived, leaving his ancestral uh, relationships, that is to say, his family, and that wouldn't just be, you know, Tira, that would be the, um, you know, the, the, the broader family that had resided in Ur, leaving that, leaving his inheritance, leaving, and by faith, sojourning in a strange land, living in tents with his children. That's commendable, brothers and sisters. Believing God's promise is commendable, brothers and sisters. I could relay a number of things about Abraham. Commanding his children to obey Yahweh is commendable, brothers and sisters. Certainly at the very top, at least in my heart, of the actions of Abraham is his willingness to offer his only son Isaac on Mount Moriah. That act should take the breath out of your soul in many respects in seeing that in this man. This man's life under God, I'm not lifting him up above Jesus, but this man's life relative to human beings by the grace of God is worthy, if you will, of its place in Hebrews chapter 11 and again, indeed, throughout the entire narrative of the Bible and also in human history. I suppose you know that Abram or Abraham features prominently in the three monotheistic faiths of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And so it's not my desire to treat the life of Abraham cavalierly, whimsically, um, in some way that is um, less than respectful and appropriate. We are told in Romans 4.12 that we are to walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. 
In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 7, we are told, They which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. In the ninth verse, this is repeated. Of Je Je Galatians 3, what was I saying? Genesis? Thank you. Again, I certainly appreciate the corrections of misstated verse locations. So in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, listen to the language. The Bible takes the life of Abraham. I don't know if you find that odd. I don't, but I'm just trying to stir up your thinking. Meaning, here's a man's name. A man, a human being that need to be re needed to be regenerated is by God's inspiration put in Paul's, or Paul puts it in his epistle as someone's, someone whose faith we are to follow. They which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Verse 9, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So that's some of the language of the scripture that features Abraham in a very prominent way. And I would say to you that um, it can or could be the case, and maybe in many instances it is the case, that the way that Abraham's life is interacted with, again, in the great monotheistic faith, and I say great in the sense that they're popular, they're, they're, they're uh, you know, the, the, the most populous religions in the world, that is to say, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, that, like, say, with Muhammad, for example, that uh, essentially the only way that Abraham is spoken of is in a positive manner. And he, Abraham, is certainly worthy of that positive conversation. But, dear brothers and sisters, did you hear that in every place where we are drawn to the life of Abraham, it is said that we are to walk in the steps of his faith. We are to be of faith so that we can be the children of Abraham. We have to be of faith in order to be blessed with faithful Abraham. You see, the emphasis is on Abraham's faith, not his fumbles, not his failures, and certainly not his fears. Now, to raise that sort of juxtaposition of actions is not to prove that he had any. And again, the way my heart is engaging with the text, and I recommend this disposition, my heart is engaging with the text in a very respectful and a very um, trepidatious manner that I don't want to read into the text something that is illegitimate. But I am called to follow the faith of our father Abraham. I am not to call, I am not called to follow the example of any of the men that preceded Abraham when they failed. Whether it be Noah or Adam, or if I knew something about Methuselah, which was not altogether worthy to be followed, I should not follow that. Did Abraham have any fumbles or failures or fears that captured him in a way that we should avoid being captured by? That is the question before us today in this study entitled, Facing Famine and Fleeing. And may the admonitions 
that are available to us from Abraham's life reach our hearts. Remember with me again, I'm not a broken record when I restate these ideas because these are the things God's church, God's people need to take to heart. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, these things were written for our admonition, the implication, dear brothers and sisters, is that there are things in the lives that we are reading about that admonish us in one way or another. They warn our lives. They could be positive things that warn us to be like them, or they could be features of otherwise stellar lives that did not reach up to the brightness to which God himself inhabits. They are not walking in the light as he is in the light. And these things also in the truthfulness of the biblical ancient writings. They are not mythical. They show us all of the failures of the great heroes as well. And we are not to follow those steps, dear brothers and sisters. And so we are to be thereby admonished by Abraham's life. Do you believe there's something about Abraham's life by which we could be admonished today that God could speak to the church in our time and admonish our behavior, teach us about how we should respond to certain experiences that we have, even if we are, in some respects, walking in the faith of Abraham. Are there steps that Abraham took that are not faith that we should recognize and avoid? Well, let's return to Abram's life. And let's remind ourselves that indeed in the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis, Abram gets out of Haran after being told again by God to get out. You could say the second time, because the scriptures tell us that God had said on to Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, on to a land which I will show thee. Whether that's the second time, or the third, or the fourth, or the fifth time. You know what I'm trying to say? How many times was Abram possibly convicted while in Ur of Haran that I was called to go to the land of Canaan, and maybe my father Terah isn't really, you know, maybe he's not a believer, which he, which he is, we're told that he worshipped idols on the other side of the flood at one point in his life, and maybe died in that condition. We don't know for sure. But, but what we do know is the Lord had said to Abraham, and when we follow on in Genesis um, chapter 12, we are blessed to see that Abraham departs. He dies, he vanishes, as we've seen, to Haran and he comes with Sarah and his nephew Lot, and they come into the land of Canaan. The language in verse 5 is so beautiful. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And then we read in verse 6, And Abram passed through the land onto the place of Shechem. This is relatively north. It's not the most northern part of the land that would ultimately be promised to Abram, uh, but, it, but, it, but it is relatively north. So he passes through the land, and he comes to Shechem, onto the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. 
And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto him, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he built an altar. And then he removes himself east to a mountain east of Bethel. This is about, as I've told you before, 20 miles south of Shechem. He pitches his tent. Verse 9 tells us, And Abram journeyed. The Hebrew verb is nasah. He journeys. He uproots himself from that location to the, to the east of Bethel. And he goes on further down to the south, to the, what is in the Hebrew as the Negev. He goes down to the south. And ultimately, he would reach Beersheba. Now, what are we reading here thus far? Why go over this again? Well, because what we're seeing is Abraham is being obedient. He is, he is following God's word. He doesn't know exactly where that word is going to lead him any more than the new believer knows exactly where the word is going to lead him or her. That in itself is a spiritual principle. Because unfortunately, the way that sometimes Christianity is construed is more or less that even before you get saved, you know exactly what all this means. It just means you walk an aisle, you say you believe in Jesus, and you have a better life. And everything else can remain the same. So if there's no mystery to this. There's no sort of um, venture or adventure that you have to enter into and stay faithful to and follow the word wherever it leads you. Follow the Lamb wherever He goes. But Abraham is walking by faith, brothers and sisters. He isn't just theorizing in Iran about the monotheistic God who's revealing himself named Yahweh and getting his theology right. He is actually following the Lord where God leads him, and he enters into the promised land. Now, I'm not John Bunyan, and I'm not here to allegorize, not that I'm saying, that's why I use his name, I'm not, I can say I'm not Origen, and I'm not here to allegorize ad nauseum, but, dear brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to say is, it is available to us, it is appropriate that you think in terms of the promised land standing as a euphemism, as a wonderful description of all that is possible to the human believer, that is to say, all that is possible to the Christian who enters into the land and the space of fellowship with God, who enters into the 66 books of the Bible, who becomes a part of a New Testament, spirit-filled, living word, church, and assembly, that you enter into the promised land, you enter into the space and the possibilities of all that God has for you. And what we see Abraham doing is he isn't parking at one experience setting up a church steeple or something of that nature and calling themselves the first church of the X, Y, or Z and essentially repeating that week after week after week, more or less, with little variation and satisfying oneself that thus far you are saying things that are true. You preach an evangelistic sermon week after week after week to people that already should be regenerated as opposed to bringing them through all the land of the text of the Word. 
So thus far, Abram or Abraham, you know how I go back and forth with that. Um, Abram's shorter, and I'm always trying to save space, you know, because I tend to preach a little long. So every little bit helps. But uh, in any event, so Abraham is doing well by moving throughout the land at God's direction. Thus far, he's doing well. That's verse 9. But chapter 12 continues into the 10th verse, and I would like to read the 10th verse to you at this time. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was very grievous in the land. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt. This is certainly additional movement. And I don't know if you have conclusions about this ahead of time. Even if you do, I highly suggest you listen to how the Spirit sets it before your attention today. But I can assure you, number one, that not all commentators, confessing Christian commentators, and I'm not suggesting they're not Christian, that, that only Lord knows, I'm not saying they're bad commentators, but I am stating to you that first of all, even within the array of commentaries, not all see this as anything but a logical, rational, necessary move that Abram makes in going down to Egypt. There was a famine. You have to take care of your family. So he went down to Egypt where the food was. But before our hearts, dear brothers and sisters, and in the interest of understanding Joseph's life, we are looking into these steps of Abram in order to see if that is an accurate conclusion that these also are steps that we should follow. Or is it the case that there is an available lesson that would admonish us in our own experience? Well, to sort of dig into this, I want to bring to your attention the fact that the first four generations of the chosen family face famine. The chosen family being that which starts with Abram and, you know, moves on down, you know, ultimately to, to Jesus, really, and spiritually to ourselves. The first four generations face famine. Abraham does right here in this text, Genesis 12. Isaac does in Genesis 26. Jacob does in Genesis 42. And simultaneously, concurrently, Joseph does, but he is aware of it prior to Jacob. And you could see it happening in earnest in Genesis 41 in verse 53. Now let that sink in just a little bit. God is providential, obviously. Why should it be that the first four generations face famine? Well, someone might say because of the nature of the region that they are presently residing in. And indeed, archaeological investigations have discovered that there was a 300-year cycle of droughts within the general region of, we might say, you know, well, this area, the Middle East, back in 
whatever it would be, what they call the early Bronze Age or whatever, whatever it would be, back in the era of 2000 uh, uh, BC. Not a 300-year-long drought, and that's all there was, but a cycle of weather patterns that included repeated droughts. This is in some of the Egyptian papyri texts, and there are other ways in which archaeological investigations discover these sorts of things. So you could say it's just, you know, the natural phenomenon of the earth, but then what would you be saying? You would be saying that everything is basically, should be viewed from the prism of naturalism, as opposed to providentialism. And what I'm suggesting to you is that really what we're dealing with is a hermeneutic motif that God is providing to the reader by which we can measure where the chosen family is at, where the spiritual development or lack thereof is at within the project that God is making possible for this group of people. The experience of famine, I'm saying. The difficulty of this particular experience is something that every new generation within Abraham's lineage faces, and we will see, though we will not develop it fully this afternoon, but we will see how each of these individuals respond to that, and we will be able to measure where the spiritual progress is. And to get ahead of the story, we will see with Joseph that finally in Joseph there is a spiritual appropriate solution that uh, manifests that can then bring the whole family forward. But even that is very interesting in the way that that all unfolds. We will likely touch on some of that before we're through today. But what I'm wanting to say to you, first of all, is I disagree with the view that we should just take this famine as just something, some incidental feature of Abraham's life and naturally needs to go down, you know, to um, Egypt in order to deal with this. I would disagree with that, brothers and sisters, much like I would disagree with many things that God's chosen family in our own time tend to place within the category of providence when it's not to be placed there exclusively or simply. That is to say, certainly God is providential over all the, all the affairs of history. God is the one who is sovereign overall. But brothers and sisters, things like, oh, let's say, plagues, things like various natural disasters, various things that occur in national history, the history of various nations, these things, dear brothers and sisters, are experiences that measure the spiritual development of how the project of Almighty God is going with the current people and the current individuals who have the Word of God in their trust. And so I think we should look at how the great-grandfather of Joseph does facing famine. The title, of course, of this particular segment is Facing Famine and Fleeing. We can add fleeing to foreigners. 
Because that's precisely what he does, facing famine and fleeing to foreigners for his food. Is that a justifiable perspective is the question. Well, coming back to the 10th verse, in Genesis 12 we read, And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down. The Hebrew verb here is yahrad, yahrad. And it can mean to descend like a river. And I'm going to make use of that connotation in order to draw within your minds the imagery that I'm wanting to stir your thinking with. Well, as a matter of fact, just to establish that what I just said is true as it relates to this verb, in Psalm 133 and verse 33, you'll remember this well-known statement, as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. Dew that descends upon the mountain of Zion. Yahrad is used for descend. The significance being, here is the image of water. Water just flowing down at the beckoning of gravity. Water is a wonderful provision of Almighty God. But dear brothers and sisters, we are not to be unstable like water or we will not prevail. We have to not just go with the flow, dear brothers and sisters. We can't just be pulled by the gravitational fears of the circumstances around us or the popular opinions or what everybody else is doing. I already relayed to you that the archaeologists and the scriptologists that study text and so on have discovered that there was this long extended period of droughts within the region that Abraham is presently in. Remember, he's in the Negev. He's down in the south, dear brothers and sisters. And he's in that relatively desert region. And now there is a drought. And in addition to just the fact of the the weather cycles, there is also evidence of various Asiatic peoples that make or made treks into Egypt in order to get themselves fed. There are uh, pictorial uh, remnants, artifacts that show these people in their dress and so on, moving down into Egypt. What I'm saying is, one could look at what Abram did He's freshly in this new land. He is moving through this land. He gets down to the south. And a drought occurs. And, you know, he's the new guy in town. And he's surrounded by a culture and by a people. He's a stranger in a strange land. And everybody goes down to Egypt under such circumstances. So why shouldn't we? I mean, everybody puts a mask on, everybody goes down and gets the vaccine, so why shouldn't God's people just do the same? That's exactly the kind of mentality that was happening in Abram's life at this point. Is He felt fearful, he felt unqualified to make an independent decision, and everybody else was going down, and it was a very serious circumstance. I don't think it was a Fauci and famine. 
within which 90% of the crops are producing anyway, and just because 1% isn't, you know, as uh, productive as usual, which is actually probably a good year, we still throw up, you know, the uh, hysteria and say, everybody march down to Egypt in order to get taken care of. And let's get used to this trek down to Egypt. Let's do it over and over again so you will look to the Egyptians instead of to the God that is seeking to build a relationship in your life within a certain space, within a certain confined experience so that you can learn to walk with Him there. So you see, the use of the idea of the Dew of Hermon you know, this blessing, the dew of Hermon is a wonderful thing, brothers and sisters, but, and thank God some things do flow down like water, but our lives, though we're called to be refreshing and all the rest of it, we cannot, dear brothers and sisters, just allow the gravitational pull of fears or the media-driven narratives to just draw us down so we flow right through the promised land like so much water and puddle up into the world and then stare up at the world and say, help me. That is not walking by faith. That is not the picture of God's project going well among the people of God. You see, the way I would put it is this is when things really start going south. That is literally true, but it's also figure, figure, figuratively true. It's so interesting to see that in the ninth verse of Genesis 12, we are told that Abraham uproots himself and he journeys down, still going toward the south. And then a famine hits, and he goes 225 miles or somewhere in that range, depending on where you think he is at the moment, down into Egypt. And is that not quite similar, brothers and sisters, to actions that we may take ourselves when we enter into the land and the space that God calls us into, and we spend a little bit of time exploring His Word. For example, this meeting began with the seventh chapter of Matthew's Gospel. So maybe you start reading the first book of the New Testament and you're reading Matthew's Gospel and soon enough you're going to get into the Sermon on the Mount. And there's an awful lot of things there that instruct you as to how you should live in God's sacred space, how you should represent God's name, what actions are the actions of faith. But then maybe somebody sues you at court, and instead of you handing them your cloak, you, you know, you get all feisty, and you sue them back, or you fight them, or, you know, you don't turn the other cheek, or, or whatever, and you say, well, why should I? Nobody does. It's, it's the logical thing to do. It just, it just makes sense. Well, dear brothers and sisters, I'm trying to say, and as I hope we will see, that if Abram continued to walk in this manner, and if Isaac after him, and Jacob after him, and Joseph after him, and Manasseh after him, and all the way down the line, if they just keep walking like this, then God's project never goes forward. There is no godly light in the world that is bringing blessing and the possibility of what 
a reconciled life to Almighty God can look like in the face of famine, in the face of various natural disasters, in the face of the fears that so capture the culture that is around you. I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, that he goes south in a way that was not directed by Almighty God. He faces famine and flees in fear to foreigners. We want to sort of grade Abram at this point, and I've already given you quite a preamble about my respect for Abram's life. So I feel as if I've already satisfied, and it is an objective I want to satisfy. I want to make myself clear that I respect his life. I'm not measuring myself next to him. I am ministering the word of God. If God can point out to us that Moses was wrong by striking the rock, it's my duty when I preach the whole counsel of God to acknowledge that and to point that out and to warn ourselves accordingly. And I am saying that as I read this text, what I see when I grade Adam here, he gets an F for failure because he faces famine, flees in fear to foreigners. Abraham. Who did I say? Adam. Thank you again. Romans 4, Hebrews 11, as we've already stated, lists a number of things that Abraham did by faith. Facing famine and fleeing to Egypt is not among them. I'm not here to take away from you, brothers and sisters, our brother read Matthew 7, which begins with, judge not lest you be judged. I'm not judging God's church in that kind of critical disposition. But I'm saying... There may be a number of things that God's people do by faith. They believe in the redemptive power of the blood simply by faith. Sola fide. Just by faith they believe in Almighty God. But I would suggest to you that there are a lot of things that God's people do that are not by faith. And when the Scriptures tell us in Hebrews 11.6 that without faith it is impossible to please God, then I want you to know that that applies to all of us, Abraham included, which should be such an admonition to our hearts. It should be such an admonition, in my opinion, to the churches today. If we can point out something about Abraham's steps in the face of a natural disaster, in the face of a natural calamity, if you will, something akin to a plague, something akin to some sort of, um, you know, earthquake or, or just national fears. And if we can point out that this man is to be commended for how he responded to God in faith in other parts of his life, but here this is not faith and it is not right in God's eyes. I believe, brothers and sisters, there's a message right there, right there looking at us with loving, longing eyes saying, can you hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches? Allow me, in order to stress this point, to relate to you that Israel's history, Israel's overall history, manifests a propensity, if not an addiction, to run to Egypt whenever things get perplexing in the promised land. And it is a shameful subplot to their national history. It is something that God is grieved about. It is something that God objects to. I want to mark this problem by giving you six texts 
We could add to this list quite a number of other texts, but I want to give you six texts before we turn to thinking about Abraham again. Because I feel as though if I can show you in Israel's overall history that this issue to running down to Egypt every time things get perplexing in the promised land is described as a serious fault, then it may enable your own heart to reflect more um, sort of discriminatingly on the one who started the whole process, namely the great father of faith who wasn't walking, in my opinion, in faith at this moment, Abraham. It is such an admonition to our hearts. Take, for example, what I will call the Exodus exigency. God had to implement something in a sort of emergency fashion once the Jews were delivered out of Egypt. I won't even speak of the fact that they had spent 400 or so years in Egypt, much of which was characterized by slavery. They were enslaved within Egypt. I mean, I know they felt it at some level, which I suppose anyone who receives Jesus as their Savior, you would assume that they felt the slavery of their old man life within the world. And so you would think that the children of Israel would be very keen on what the location of Egypt represents. It represents slavery and bondage. But amazingly, there is an exigency that is very critical at the point of the Exodus, and we read about it in chapter 13 and verse 17, and it sounds like this, and it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. Is this amazing or not? that when the children of Israel are delivered out of 400 years of bondage, God has to implement the exigency, the urgent need of making sure that they do not face anything difficult too soon or they will run right back to the place where they had been in bondage. They will run right back to Egypt. Like water, they will flow right out of God's purpose and puddle up again in the world in order to solve their problems. I guess you see with me in Exodus 13, 17 that the idea of returning to Egypt is not a positive thing. It is a problem. Secondly, I will give you the text that speaks of what I will call threshold anxiety. This occurs about a, a year after the Exodus has taken place. It is found in Numbers 14 
and sounds like this, verse 1. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or would God we had died in this wilderness! Wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey. Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? And they said one to another, let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. Is this not an amazing text? It has the components of a minister of God. Indeed, two of them, one by the name of Moses, another by the name of Aaron. And they had understudies, each of them. I'm not saying they were associated independently with each of them. That is to say, Joshua, so to speak, under Moses, and Caleb under Aaron. But we had these two understudies that were calling God's people forward into the promised land. Don't be afraid. Take it by faith. Follow on with the Lord and let Him meet your needs, even in the prospect of these fearful circumstances. You have to do something, and you'll always find that in life. You've got to do something, brothers and sisters. And the question becomes, is God your resource? Is He the great I Am that meets all of your needs, or do you run back to Egypt? Here we have ministry faithfully calling God's people forward, but they want their own minister. They want to make a captain that will lead them back and say, it's okay to follow the ways of the world. It's okay to go back to Egypt to resolve this particular challenge and difficulty. Listen to their language. It is sort of Fauchian, if you don't mind my saying so, because they say, um, why did the Lord lead us into this land to fall by the sword? Had they fallen by the sword yet? No. That our wives and our children should be a prey. Have their wives and children become a prey yet? No. They're just hypothesizing this, that if we go into this land, then these things are going to happen to us. Well, that's because you're not thinking about it in faith. You're not trusting God's promises. You're not saying, if God be for us, what can be against us? If there's a promise for this is it not the case that all the promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus? Isn't it true that you have not because you ask not? Which means if you ask, you will receive if you ask in faith and believe and walk with God as you should. Joshua and Caleb are saying, we can take this land. We're not going to die. We're not going to get stuck by a sword. That's faith, brothers and sisters. But they're murmuring and complaining about something that hasn't even existed. It's not even real. It's not even killing them. But they're convinced we can't do it. And as I say, you're gonna, in certain circumstances in life, you know, and I believe we're moving into these experiences more so in this nation and in the world where indecision will not be possible. The threats and the dangers, etc., of even coming to the house of God may send you to jail. So what do you do? Run down to Egypt? To, I don't know, I'm not going to expand on these ideas right now because it would take us into a different direction. I couldn't work through the material. I'll leave it for your minds to reflect on what running down to Egypt might look like in that scenario. 
I have no problem with quoting, you know, the Constitution of the United States. I have no problem with a range of things that may be within the purposes of God. But if you think you're just going to litigate yourself into liberty, you have another thing coming, brothers and sisters. To the extent that God will allow that, I'm all for it. But what I'm trying to say is Daniel couldn't litigate himself out of the den. He had to trust Almighty God that God would be with him. Like Shadrach, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Oh, that's a great way to go. It's not exactly a chariot of fire in their case, but it's a pretty decent way to go if you have to go serving God right in a furnace of fire, straight up to heaven with a very warm testimony. Why not? So what I'm trying to say here, without being cavalier, because I'm not being cavalier about these things, because I live and walk this, brothers and sisters, I'm saying you don't run down to Egypt. I faced many things in my life where the temptation is to, is to flow like water out of the present circumstance and find somebody, help! As, as opposed to looking in my heart and saying, I have to navigate the land of my heart and get this right with God. I can't just run somewhere else because I bring my heart with me. And it still has fears and unfaithfulness. And God hasn't given me a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind so that I will deal in truth and not lies. Then the regal regulations is another example that shows us this propensity for running to Egypt. It had to be placed within the regal regulations of Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning with the 14th verse. When thou art come onto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, when you're in the land, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me like as all the nations that are about me. Even that's a problem. You need to be like Egypt. You need to be like the surrounding nations. But lest this go south completely, God says, and there should be something within us, brothers and sisters, not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness. It might be unpopular nowadays to draw these distinctions, uh, brothers and sisters, but I'm trying to say to you that if things aren't going to go really south with Christianity, at least as it's broadly represented or in your life, then you're going to have to observe somewhere separation from Egypt and finding your resource in God. Because you might allow some compromise in your life. I'm not suggesting you should, but what I'm trying to say, in my opinion, if it's worth anything, the churches in general, in many cases, already have alliances and affiliations that are similar to the world, practices that are similar to the world. And if they don't stop this somewhere, everything's going to go south. And so there's this command in the regal regulations about the king. When you ask to have a king over you, then... You cannot set a stranger over you, you know, like an Egyptian. <laughs> you know, that would just take you right back to the world. 
You better set someone who's regenerate, someone who loves God, someone who knows God, who knows what it is to walk with God, who has a testimony of faith. Set that one over you, not someone that looks like the world, talks like the world, sleeps around like the world, sings like the world, and all the rest of it, because eventually they will lead you down into Egypt, and then they will be discovered for the fraud that they are. But guess what? You're firmly planted in the slavery of Egypt in your ecclesiastical situation. You know? I'm thinking of various scenarios even in our current time when, you know, these, these, these showmanship pastors and so on with their tattoos and their sculptured bodies and all the rest of it, you know, that people flock to. But then they discover that there's a lot of world in them and Maybe they've been leading you in that same direction. As a matter of fact, they definitely have. So I'm still reading in Deuteronomy, verse 16, but he shall not multiply horses to himself. In other words, he's not to trust in a military apparatus. He's to trust in Almighty God. Nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. You know, buy his military equipment from you know, wherever you would get it. Nowadays, I guess most nations want to buy it from the United States, but if you think, you know, your trust is in the horses of the American military, uh, you haven't been paying attention to the way things are shifting lately because it's the great army of the wokeness anymore that, uh, <laughs> you know, won't stand in combat, I'll tell you that, unless it's a combat about who is the most ridiculous. To the end that he should multiply horses for as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Does it begin to emerge in your spirit that that kind of statement and other ones we will yet read, when you start putting these together, how can you read those statements that God makes and yet look at what Abram did as okay in the eyes of God? Well, Isaiah has some instructions along these lines. In Isaiah 31, I read in the New King James, he says, Woe to those that go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. There is a haunting absence of any sort of language in the Genesis account of Abraham at this point, the 10th verse of Genesis 12. There's a haunting absence of an altar or a seeking God or asking what is the word of the Lord for this circumstance. And I have empathy for Abraham. Believe me, I realize, you know, he's new in the walk, if you want to call it that. And he really, truly is. I have empathy for him, but this is the lesson we have to learn. You have to hold your ground, not be moved by sudden fear. You've got to seek the Lord and say, what's the word of the Lord in this circumstance? Is any man sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil, and the prayer of faith shall heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. Maybe somebody said, well, I don't believe in that. What, what do you mean? You don't believe your Bible? Well, I don't, I don't think I believe it probably in the way that you mean it. How do you know how I mean it? I mean, at any point that I preach on James 5, 14 and 15, a new hearer wouldn't know necessarily how I mean it. But I am saying to you, that's the Word of God. That is something that's telling you what to do 
in time of physical trial. Now you're either going to stay in the promised land or you're going to flow like water right through it. You're going to go right through your Bible. You're going to flow like water right through your Bible. And you won't prevail because you're unstable. You're double-minded in your ways. No, it must mean something, right? You say, well, it only meant something for the first century. Okay, well, let's start somewhere. What did it mean in the first century? Let's start there. And why are we necessarily different from the first century? Did God abandon us? You know, we could go on with that conversation, and we certainly will in the Lord's timing. But I want to get back to this. I'll give you Zedekiah's zigzag. He is the 20th and last king of Judah, the southern tribe. I can't develop all the context here. It would take too long. I'm interested in pulling the remaining ideas together and making sure this doesn't tax anyone's attention. And I don't mean that critically, by the way. It's a, a true endeavor that I have. But uh, in Ezekiel chapter 17, we read the following. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, Know ye not what these things mean? Tell them. Behold, the king of Babylon is come to Jerusalem and hath taken the king thereof and the princes thereof and led them with him to Babylon and hath taken of the king's seed and made a covenant with him and hath taken an oath of him. He hath also taken the mighty of the land. That is, Nebuchadnezzar has taken the mighty of the land that the kingdom might be base, that it might not lift itself up, but that by the keep, keeping of his commandment it might stand. Do you understand what we're reading here? Again, at the risk of expanding, he's saying, these are the conditions. Judah will be base. It will, um, it will not be able to lift itself up, but if it keeps this covenant with God's appointed chastening, which is Nebuchadnezzar, you can read that for yourself. If you stay with the Word of God under these conditions, are you hearing me? Meaning sometimes the conditions are, aren't, you know, that warm and fuzzy. You know what I'm saying? Like God says, thou art the man, and now a certain set of things are going to happen to your family, and you can either submit to it and go through, or you can rebel against it like Saul, and not stay in the Word of the Lord, and run down to Egypt to kill David, so you can have your own way. Verse 15, but he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar in sending ambassadors to Egypt that he might give him horses and much people. Shall he prosper? Shall he escape that doeth such things? Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? As I live, saith the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwelleth that made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he brake, even with him in the midst of Babylon, he shall die. Brothers and sisters, where are the overcomers? That overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of God's testimony, and they love not their lives unto the death. They would follow the Lamb wherever he goes, 